in one of Dostoevsky's books, he tells a story of an old peasant woman, very wicked woman, who died without a single good deed left behind. So in his little story, all she did throughout her life, she did for herself alone. No good deed, no kind act, not even a kind look. And after she died in the story, the devil seizes her, and he plunges her into this lake of fire. And her guardian angel uh, stood and wondered, did this wicked woman, uh, is there anything he could remember that she had done um, to, to tell God that was good? And then the guardian angel uh, thought, once she did pull up an onion from her garden and give it to a beggar woman. And so uh, he tells God this, and God says, go get that onion. Hold it out to her over this lake of fire, and uh, she can grab hold of it, and you can pull her out. And if you can pull her out, she can come with me to paradise. And if not, uh, if the onion breaks, then she will remain. So the angel ran to the woman and held out the onion to her, and she caught hold of it. And he began cautiously pulling her out by this onion. And she was just about out in his story But then the other sinners in the lake began to grab hold of this woman and cling to her in hopes that they could get out too. And being wicked as she was, she started kicking them. I'm getting out, not you. This is my onion, not yours. And the minute she did that, the onion breaks. And in his story... She falls. And in the story, it says, you know, she is burning there to this day. And the angel wept and went away. Okay, so I read this story this week, and uh, I just thought it was a lighthearted way for us to begin the service today. (laughs) But uh, in the story, obviously, this is not a story about how to get to paradise. We know that our salvation rests in Christ alone, not in any of our good efforts or our good deeds. This story, rather, is a story about how to avoid hell. Not a fiery lake at the end of life, but hell here and now. Because according to the scriptures, hell is made up of greed and selfishness, cold calculation, pride and indifference and exclusion. It is the absence of God's love. So we're in this series on forgiveness. And unforgiveness traps us in a hell of our own choosing. When we are hurt, and we all are hurt, in little and big ways throughout our lives, when we get hurt, when we are hurt, we actually have the power to choose a path of healing or a path that 
keeps us in hell. The choice is ours. Poet, the poet Rumi said this, out beyond ideas of right doing and wrongdoing, there is a field. I will meet you there. Out beyond ideas of right doing and wrongdoing, there is a field. I will meet you there. I think it is that field that God would like to meet us in. And often, when we get hurt, we would rather stay in our ideas of right doing and wrongdoing, playing that over in our minds, and we never make it past all that to the field where God wants to meet us. So this morning, I want us to ask this question. Who is forgiveness for? Because in Matthew 6, Jesus, what's become, come to be known as the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us how to pray. He says, part of the prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. So let's think about that. Forgive us our sins. Stopping right there, we tend to do one of two things with sin, the wrongdoing with shortcoming in our lives. One track is minimizing, excusing, explaining away, not really sensing our need for ongoing forgiveness. The other is to be so harsh on ourselves, to beat up on ourselves with the thought that maybe if I am hard on myself about this long enough, I can pay. I could pay my own way. Either route is not receiving the forgiveness available to us through God in Christ. The story of the Bible and really the story of all of our lives cannot really be understood without an understanding of that which God chooses to call sin. So what is sin? If Jesus says, pray, forgive us our sins, what is sin? All the way back in the beginning in Genesis, the first human beings, Adam and Eve, the serpent comes to them with one singular lie. You can be like God. That's the lie. And sometimes I wonder if the serpent said it to them like five times, emphasizing different words each time, like you can be like God. 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 This is the lie. This is the lie that they buy. What is sin? The fundamental nature of sin is just to declare independence from God. I don't know about you, but I do that in a myriad of ways every day. I don't need you because... I can be like you on my own. And I leave that place of dependence to a place of independence from God. And that is what sin is. 
It's living in independence from God. That's why our most holy and necessary practice is God's presence. We sang last week, I need you. God, I need you. Every hour I need you. You are my one defense. I don't need to defend myself. You're my righteousness. I don't need to prove myself. Because in you, I find my worth, I find my purpose, I know what to say yes to and what to say no to in you and only in you. It's our most holy and necessary practice, God's presence. So what's sin? When we say, forgive us our sins, God, forgive us of the na- our nature to constantly be declaring independence from you and turning back to dependence on you. So Susan just read this passage in Colossians 3, beautiful passage, and in this passage we read, uh, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive, how? How should you forgive? Forgive as the Lord forgave you. See, Paul in Colossians And Jesus, in Matthew 6, in the Lord's Prayer, they're saying the same thing. Forgive one another because you have been forgiven. Love because you have been loved. Become what God has claimed that you actually are. You're free. You're loved. Claim that and give away what you've freely been given. Grace. But forgive us our sins assumes we've experienced that grace and are experiencing that mercy and that grace in an ever-flowing river in our lives. So who is forgiveness for? It's not for the other person. It's not for the person being forgiven. I have a friend who was adopted as an infant and struggled with a lot of shame and resentment towards her birth mom for giving her up for adoption. She felt shame over being given up. She wondered why it was that her mother would want, would not want to have her. She wondered if she wasn't good enough to be her mother's daughter. And she harbored that anger and that resentment and that shame towards her birth mom for many years. And eventually she came to the place where she could forgive her birth mother for giving her up for adoption. And in doing that, she entered into that field of freedom, no longer carrying that shame and that anger. But here's what's interesting. She never met her birth mom. She went on that journey never having met her birth mother. She has no idea who she is. And yet, she's still able to forgive her with the birth mom playing no part in the forgiving process. Here's the thing. Even if her birth mom had been a part of the process, it's possible that she would have said, like, you don't need to forgive me. You need to thank me. I did you a favor. Her birth mom could have had a very different perspective, could have a very different perspective, opinion. But when it comes to forgiveness... That's irrelevant. I mean, the person 
can have a perspective that comes and goes, changes, stays the same. You can agree with them or not agree with them and still walk the journey of forgiveness. Forgiveness is not for the other person. Forgiveness is for me. It's for you. My friend, by forgiving her birth mother, experienced freedom, and she participated in the grace of God that's transforming her. Forgive us our sins we receive as we forgive those who sin against us. Martin Luther had this really interesting um, phrase. He said, sin boldly, but believe and rejoice in Christ more boldly still. Sin boldly, but believe and rejoice in Christ more boldly still. Now, at first glance, that statement, it just seems like a justification, right? Like, for do whatever I want because of God's grace. But that is not what Luther was saying. God's grace, free, unmerited. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give your love to me. Unmerited, free. I'm forgiven of my sin before I ever even commit it. But how can I experience the forgiveness? How can I be transformed by the grace? Only in, in admitting the need. So he says, sin boldly. Like, it is in boldly and fearlessly acknowledging my own sin that I receive grace and forgiveness from Christ and am free to follow Christ in offering that same grace, that same forgiveness to others who have sinned against me. So my forgiveness of others, it's just, it's like participation in the love of God, which is this ever-flowing stream in my experience, in my own life. It is the field of God's love past all these ideas of right doing and wrong doing. We have to accept we're impoverished and in need. Every hour, I need you. Brennan Manning, author, um, said this regarding his own need. When I get honest, I admit I'm a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt. I hope and I get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty about not feeling guilty. I'm trusting and suspicious. I am honest and I still play games. Aristotle said I'm a rational animal. I say I'm an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. <laughs> to live by grace means to acknowledge my whole life story, the light side and the dark. In admitting my shadow side, I learn who I am and what God's grace means. As Thomas Merton put it, a saint is not someone who is good, but who experiences the goodness of God. When I get honest, I too must admit I am a bundle of paradoxes. You know, when I, I have this memory when I was five years old, 
I remember waking up in the middle of the night to a lot of screaming in my kitchen. And I wandered out in my pajamas to find my parents with my sister, my uh, all-out war. My dad was drunk, my sister was high, and I was scared. And I just remember as my mom like took me back into my bed, reassuring me it's going to be okay, I just remember like starting to think, don't ever get in that situation. You don't want to ever get yelled at like that. My sister is, um, this sister is 10 years older than me, so she was like 15 at the time, and I was like five, and uh, she was in and out of, in all sorts of trouble, in and out of drug rehab center, and so that night was a huge blow up. Fast forward in my life to when I'm like 13, and um, Junior high, I am trying out for the pom-pom squad. <laughs> it's like my ticket to belonging and acceptance through junior high. And um, I, I remember that uh, I was trying out for palms, glittery palm, palms in your hand. Yes, that. And so I'm trying out for this. And uh, the routine for the tryouts was to Paula Abdul's song, Straight Up Now. Yeah. No, I'm not going to do it for you right now. <laughs> But, <laughs> but I, I have this memory of my whole family lining up in the formal living room, on the formal living room couch, to watch me do this routine the night before tryouts. And you guys, my dad's face could still make me weep. Like, he was just so proud, so happy. Man, those of you who are dads, like, the power of a look of love. Never underestimate it. So I'm doing my little performance that I practiced over and over for them. And I just remember my dad at the end of it was like, oh, you're definitely going to make it. And the next day, I went to the sign at school, and my name was on the sign, and I had made the squad, and... I felt so good. And even though I had a rebellious side, like my older sister, I started to calculate and make the plan. Like, um, don't let that side be seen because that gets you yelled at. But this side, the performer in you, she's going to be loved, she's going to belong. She's going to get affirmation and attention, and she's going to help you survive junior high and life. And I bought into the lie. And we all buy into some nuanced version of the lie. Usually, for most people, it's rooted in one of these lies, that you are what you have or you are what you do, or you are what other people say about you, lie, lie, lie. And the serpent comes to us, and we begin a false self. We develop what many authors call the false self, what the scripture writers, the old self, the new self, 
It is our nuanced way of surviving in the world. It helps us in our early years. It's really just a persona that helps you stay alive. It is needed, but it is rooted in our egos, and it's not the truest thing about you. But we spend so much of our lives living with this adapted self or false self. Sometimes you just step, I don't even know who I am apart from this. Many of us uh, would not even be able to see, and all of us are unable to see, without God's help. The false self is not bad. She's needed. She helps you survive Um, And here's the good news. God knows who you really are. And the more you come to know God, the more you come to know your true self. There is a deeper and truer you, the unique one and only you, the snowflake that is you, that is the image of God in you, and discovering that person, that's a lifelong journey. That is not one sermon, one retreat, one conference. That is a lifelong journey for all of us, and it is where freedom is found. This false self that helps us survive over time, it's a tremendous drain on our energy. It's like a tire with a leak. It's like a jar with a crack. And worst of all, God cannot relate to your false self. It's a shadow. It's a phantom. It's an imposter. It doesn't contain anything. The self that God loves the self that experiences the reckless, never-ending, never-changing, reckless love of God that we just sang about, that self is not your prettied-up self. It's the true you. It's the real you. And there's no point in our beating ourselves up. It doesn't work anyway. It doesn't help anyway. Rather, we must accept who we are And bring our full selves, adapted, false self, true bring our full self into the lap of our loving God where we experience healing. So we pray, forgive us our sins. And what are we saying? What are we praying? God, forgive me for the many, many ways I've become a performer to survive. But there's the true me you've created. And as I get to know you, I get to know her. So forgive me my sins. Forgive me for the many ways every day that I seek to live on my own, not dependent on you. And I turn from that back into dependence on you. So every day, forgive us our sins. And the power of experiencing God's love there is then what we extend to others. 
as we forgive those who sin against us. When we forgive, we're remembering God's grace towards us. When we refuse to forgive another, we're denying God's grace towards us. So in Brendan Manning's book, Abba's Child, he goes on a retreat here in Colorado, um, 21-day retreat, and at the end of that at the end of that retreat, he writes a letter to his false self, <laughs> and um, he calls his false self the imposter. And I want to share this with you as we close. He says this, Good morning, imposter. Surely you are surprised by the cordial greeting. You probably expected, hello, you little jerk, since I've hammered you from day one of this retreat. Let me begin by admitting that I have been unreasonable, ungrateful, and unbalanced in my appraisal of you. Of course you are aware, puff of smoke, that in addressing you, I'm talking to myself. You're not some isolated, impersonal entity living on an asteroid, but a real part of me. I come to you today, not with rod in hand, but with an olive branch. When I was a little shaver, first knew that no one was there for me, you intervened and showed me where to hide. In those depression days of the 30s, you recall my parents were doing the best they could just to provide food and shelter. And at that moment in time, you were invaluable. Without your intervention, I would have been overwhelmed by dread, paralyzed by fear. You were there for me and played a crucial protective role in my development. Thank you. When I was four years old, you taught me how to build a cottage. Remember the game? I'd crawl under the covers from the head of the bed to the footrest, pull the sheets, blanket, and pillow over me, actually believing no one could find me. I felt safe. I'm still amazed at how effectively it worked. My mind would think happy thoughts, and I would spontaneously smile and start to laugh under the covers. We built that cottage together because the world we inhabited was not a friendly place. But in the construction process, you taught me how to hide my real self from everyone and initiated a lifelong process of concealment, containment, and withdrawal. Your resourcefulness enabled me to survive. But then your malevolent side appeared, and you started lying to me. Brennan, you whispered, if you persist in this folly of being yourself, your few long-suffering friends will hit the bricks, leaving you all alone. So stuff your feelings, shut down your memories, withhold your opinions, and develop social graces so you'll fit in wherever you are. And so... The elaborate game of pretense and deception began. Because it worked, I raised no objection. As the years rolled by, you, I, got strokes from a variety of sources. We were elated and concluded the game must go on. But you needed someone to bridle you and rein you in. I had neither the perception nor the courage to tame you. So you continue to rumble like Sherman through Atlanta, gathering momentum along the way. Your appetite for attention and affirmation became insatiable. I never confronted you with the lie because 
I was deceived myself. The bottom line, my pampered playmate, is that you are both needy and selfish. You need care, love, and a safe dwelling place. On this last day in the Rockies, my gift is to take you where unknowingly you have longed to be into the presence of Jesus. Your days of running riot are history. From now on, you slow down, slow very down. In his presence, I notice that you've already begun to shrink. Want to know something, little guy? You're much more attractive that way. I'm nicknaming you Pee-wee. Naturally, you are not going to roll over suddenly and die. I know you will get disgruntled at times and start to act out. But the longer you spend time in the presence of Jesus, the more accustomed to you grow to his face, the less adulation you will need because you will have discovered for yourself he is enough. And in the presence, you will delight in the discovery of what it means to live by grace and not by performance. Your friend, Brennan. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Forgive us for all the ways that we declare our independence from you, God. And we throw ourselves totally, utterly, and completely in dependence on you again. Who is forgiveness for? It isn't for the person that needs to be forgiven in order that they would live. Forgiveness is for the person who needs to forgive in order that they may live. Because beyond the ideas of right doing and wrong doing, there's a field. And God desires to meet us there in the field of his grace and mercy and forgiveness and reckless love. Let's pray together as we close. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are always wooing and pursuing us, that through every high and low of our lives, there's a new invitation to know you more. And in knowing you more, we come to know ourselves more, who you've made us to be. Would you forgive us our sins, God? Would you forgive us of the myriad of ways, the nuanced ways that we seek to live independent of you? We throw ourselves utterly and completely on your loving kindness, mercy, and forgiveness. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. In the name of the Father and the Son 
and the Holy Spirit, we pray. And everybody who agreed said, amen. Amen.